0: he's done it. Four. Maticelli, Aguero. J Hill. Hill. Tim Cahill has done it again. What a goal by Tim
1: Cahill! Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Premier League Nightclub Podcast. My name is Damon. And with me today, I have Woody as usual, but I don't have Sam, but the replacement we've come in, or well, that's come in, is is probably as good as we possibly could have got. And that is James Dodd, Fox Sports's finest. James, thank you so much for joining
2: us. No problem, fellas. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure.
3: Yes, you are actually Fox Sports' finest, and, and we say that with no prejudice at all. Um, but of course, you've, you've had a pretty pretty good career thus far. And just before we sort of get stuck into the episode, can you give us a little bit of a rundown how your career has panned out and and sort of what led you down that pathway?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I started off as essentially as, a, as an eighteen-year-old kid who just really finished school. I did a like a, um, a fast-track degree in, in in journalism, knowing that. You know, I was never going to be good enough to play football, but I wanted to be involved in in some way. So mm. I wanted to start off and get into, into journalism. And, and my aim was initially, before I really kind of worked out what I wanted to do, was to get into into sports writing. So be that working for a paper or, or working online. Um, so I finished my, my degree and then I ended up getting some work experience um, through a family friend, actually, uh, at a radio station called Talk Sport in the UK. Now, in this stage, this is probably about two thousand and that's 2008. And at this mm-hmm. time, TalkSport was was, you know, was rapidly developing as, as a really cool, mainly football based ra- commercial radio station in the UK. They had commentaries of Premier League games. They had commentaries of, you know, football league matches and, and FA Cup and, and, and League Cup and, and that sort of stuff. Um so I always knew that it was kind of like a, a pretty cool place to be involved with. My dad used to listen to it religiously in the car. So I always knew what it was, and I had like a, 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 a flavor for it then. And I started off in work experience, and honestly, they just, they never got rid of me. I was there for nine years <laughs> in the end, and I started off making teas and coffees, and then worked to, you know, answering the phones on the live, call in shows, and then, and then I was an assistant producer, a producer of some of the shows, and then I took, sort of came to a fork in the road and I decided that I wanted to go into the live football aspect because as the radio station was getting bigger and bigger, they were acquiring more more rights for live games. So they had two live Premier League commentaries a weekend and they were doing commentaries midweek as well. And the opportunity came up to be the, the live football producer. So that would mean me going to both Premier League games at a weekend, the 5.30pm game on a Saturday UK time and then the one30 on a Sunday. Um, and then it was, you know, any midweek games as well. I was lucky enough to do Champions League games away from, you know, away from the UK. And, and I did all the FA Cup games, League Cup games. And it, literally, I did that for about five seasons. I was the chief producer. I then, in the last couple of seasons, got into the stage of doing all the, the interviews post and pre-match. So, you know, in the mm-hmm. week building up to a commentary game, I'd go and interview a couple of players or, you know, and then after the game, I'd go down to the tunnel and do the radio interviews with you know, the likes of Arsene Wenger, Pep Guardiola, Jürgen Klopp. And it was an amazing experience because I just never sort of pinched myself, you know, the, way, the whole way through. And it was just, Some sometimes I think back and think, well, you know, it was quite cool standing in a tunnel just doing a one-on-one interview with Pep Guardiola after they just thrashed Man United 3-0, whatever it was at the time. But, you know, and then you don't really think about it. And, you know, as time went on, I ended up doing... Uh, Euro 2012 in, in Poland and Ukraine. I was there for the whole tournament and you know produced the final for that. And then I did uh, Euro 2016 in France. And then uh, you know, I was at 2018 World Cup in Russia as, as a freelancer, but working for TalkSport again. So I had an amazing time working for, in that regard. I met some cool people. I worked with some really cool like current and, and former players. And it's just a brilliant way for anyone that was there, maybe listening and wondering about how to get into media or... or you know just sport in general if, if you realize you're not going to be a good enough player the media is such a brilliant avenue to do that and radio is you know it's so much fun as well because don't get me wrong i love working in tv now but radio as a, as a breeding ground was so good because nobody sees what you look like you know you can make a mistake if you're doing a live commentary because, <laughs> because essentially you are you know you're people's eyes and ears and you're telling them what's happening and so if you you know you're midway through a game and you say that it's Pedro, that's passed to Willian, and it's actually, you know, uh, could be Giroud that's done it. And they don't know, so they trust you. Mm. So it's a great yeah. way to harness your skills. And and yeah, I made the move out to to Australia with my partner. She moved, she's Australian. She moved back um, for family reasons, and said, you know, do you want to come with me? And I said, absolutely. No, you know, I just got into the TV side of things out here, and I've loved every every minute of it.
0: Oh, cool. P.
3: I guess I guess one thing that sort of just sorry damn I just cut you off because I just want to nip this in the butt before we we get cracking. That little that little bit where you said that you did the posts and pre-match interviews with the, say Pep Guardiola um, or, or just the big managers or Arsene Wenger or something like that. Do you ever get to the stage where the managers actually remember your name?
2: Yeah, they have done a few times, and it's been it's been quite funny because listen, I you know it's it's well documented I'm, I'm an Arsenal fan I've, I was a season to <laughs> yeah. get hold Arsenal for a long time and and they know that they 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 have, you know, when, when you're in the tunnel and, and when you're in the press conference rooms and, and things like that, you know, you have your media accreditation often hanging around your neck so you can get into different areas of the ground so even if they you might not think they know your name they definitely do because when you're asking them a question, nine times out of ten, they don't look you in the eye every time they're answering your question you know, because you might have just asked them why they played X player out of position and they lost 4-0 and you know they're often they're, their eyes are darting around so they look at your 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 lanyard you know they look at your, your path mm-hmm. so it has happened when I've, I've spoken to Arsene Wenger was one that knew me by name because I think he knew I was an Arsenal fan as well so you know it was always quite funny when I asked him something that was unnecessary after a game when they'd just beaten Burnley at 2-0 I think it was and there was a, a no 2-1 and they just got a last gasp penalty from Alexis Sanchez um, and he could tell that I was more excited about the fact that Arsenal just won than he was so, <laughs> so there was you know you, you, you do I do often sit back and think you know because I was assessing you know, my own performance and, and when I've been on the train coming home from games after work and you know you always critique what you've done and, and I listen back to the interviews and it is quite funny when, when they do reference you by name but I suppose after a little while it just becomes it just becomes your job and almost the compliment the biggest compliment they can pay you is that if they don't like what you're asking them, it's usually because you're doing your job well enough that, you know, you're you're not there as a fan, you know, and you're actually mm-hmm. critiquing them on what they've done and, and and the decisions they've made. So, yeah, it, it does happen. Um, it happened a few times, you know, and, uh, you yeah, know, it's one of those things where I suppose you just <laughs> do it back on with fondness, really.
1: <laughs> I, I was just going to say earlier, you, you described talking to Pep Guardiola, in the tunnel post matches, quite cool. I don't think I've any heard anyone underplay that as much as you just did. That that's insane.
2: <laughs> but but you say that, Damien. It's interesting because actually, Pep is is famous for for he doesn't like doing one on one interviews. Um, be mm-hmm. that the stuff that you would maybe see on Optus or you know in like a pre-match, pre match pre pre match or or post match often. In the build-up to games, this, the interviews that these managers and these players have to do is because they're contractually obliged obliged to do them because the rights holders, you know, need the content in in the build-up to to a game, so they have to do those ones. But normally, when it's you put the media request into to the press office, they normally turn it down because he doesn't like doing them. And mm-hmm. I was in the tunnel after. Uh, they just beaten, it was his first season in charge of Man City and they just beaten Southampton I think it was three 0 down at St Mary's and the press officer I know, you know relatively well was I was talking to him while you're waiting for him to finish the flash TV interview so when they come down to the tunnel they'll do the the TV broadcasters the foreign broadcasters straight away they do them one two three they knock them off you know for two and a half minutes each and then they have to do the radio rights holder which was at the time Talksport. And he walked over and he, he has a guy that you'll often notice if you see Pep and, and you know, you see him in, in the tunnel and, and often when he's doing the game, he's liaising with somebody who doesn't wear a club tracksuit. Now, that's Manel Estiarte, who is um, one of his, like, closest advisors.
0: Mm-hmm. And he
2: was walking over towards me with him and he was looking at me as if to say, why is there only one person? Why is there only one person? And so I did the interview with him and, and you know, it was uh, just three minutes or so, just uh, recording it on the phone and, and you know he was, he was excellent he was really good company and asked him some what well, I thought were good questions especially because if you remember rightly in his first season at, at Manchester City he had a big rebuilding job on and a lot of people were criticising him saying you know where's the manager that won everything before him with Barcelona and I think one of the questions I asked him was the fact that with three games left to go they just equaled the season before points tally that um, Manuel yeah. Pellegrini had got with Man City and I said does this show that the work you've, do, you've been doing this season is only just getting started yet. You've three games left to go, and you're, you're going to beat the points tally from last year. And I think he appreciated that question because, you know, he's often one of those people that he loves talking about football and the finer details of football. As opposed mm-hmm. to, you've often seen him when he gets a bit a bit ratty on on an interview afterwards when he's asked about a VAR incident or a controversial call or something that happened that, you know, a mistake from one of his players. And he doesn't like that because he likes to focus on the finer aspects of football. So, you know, it is interesting when you see how people like him actually behave. And it, it's such a, a fascinating insight into how these people work as well.
1: I feel like, especially on a, on a good day or a bad day, actually, these managers... Uh, you spoke about how Pep likes to look at the finer things, but I think back to like some of the stuff Mourinho's sort of twisted statistically in his favor. Like he, a guy scores, uh, Tottenham score three goals at Old Trafford and he somehow mentions that he's won three Premier League titles. So it's like these these guys absolutely, you know, love when they can, you know, turn a statistic into a positive for them. So I'm guessing, yeah, 100% when the, the journalist or the person asking the question is able to almost do it for them and praise them in the question, I I bet they'd probably respond incredibly well to that. I can imagine some of those European managers, their egos, you know, love to be uh, pumped up whenever they can. Uh, So, James, we do uh, a game show on the pod quite often. And um, we've actually never done it. With a guest, so this is one of many firsts in this pod. Um, basically, what it is, I'll run oh through gosh. the rules quickly, and and yeah, Woody's a bit nervous because he's never actually, as I said, played against. Oh, we're we doing uh, this you know,
3: straight off the bat,
1: <laughs> yeah, we are. I, I feel like it's a good icebreaker, it's a good icebreaker. So, okay, I basically, James, what it is, there's five rounds, uh, and there'll be two, name that player. Uh, two name that club and one name that manager. Basically, I'll give five clues. Uh, one, it, when you know, when you think you know who it is, you say your name, and then that's that's your buzzer, and you say who you think it is. You do only get one guess per round though. So, for example, if you said it after two guesses and were wrong, then Woody could hear the rest of the clues uh, for for free, and he would get a guess at the end. Um, unfortunately, we don't we there is no prize. We haven't had uh, the financial or sponsorship backing just yet, but trust me, like. And, and that's just because we haven't picked one yet, not because they haven't come, I promise. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah, basically, if it's a draw as well, we don't really have any resolution to that, so we just shake hands and, and move on. So does that sound good?
2: Sounds good to me.
1: All right, cool. <laughs> nice demo. All right. <laughs> Woody, are you ready? Yep, Hear me. All righty. Um, first up, name that player. I have played for two Premier League clubs, one of which I'm still at. I am a World Cup winner. I have scored 80 goals in 229 appearances. Games. Yes.
2: Olivier Giroud.
1: Jeez, he's good. That is correct, oh, and geez. I feel like this might be a long, a long, long game show for the Woodruff.
3: <laughs> you started off with a diehard Arsenal fan with an ex-Arsenal player. I mean, that's, pretty, that's pretty stiff,
0: if you ask me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay, next up, name that team. Our current leading goal scorer is English. Our current manager has managed other Premier League clubs before. We haven't gone further than the quarterfinals in the FA Cup since 1982. Since the 2015 and 2016 season, Woody. the same player has been our top scorer Woody. each season. yes.
3: Uh, is it Leicester?
1: It is Leicester City. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, the, the, net, the final clue was we've won the Premier League before. So I feel like that probably would have given it away. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: All right, 1-1. One, one third name that manager I'm currently in my first season as manager at the current club I'm at as a player I spent time at Sheffield Wednesday and Middlesbrough as a defender I have managed Hull City and Southampton in in the Premier League in the past in the in the 2013 14 championship season I was manager of the year And last clue, I have pulled off one of the greatest escapes in Premier League history.
0: James?
1: Yes?
2: I want to say Nigel Pearson.
1: That is correct. And And it is 2-1 to to James. James. I I feel like that that was a tough one. Yeah, Yeah, it it was actually really hard to... uh, come up with clues for that one that weren't either too obvious or, you know, next to no help. So uh, oh, yeah. I'm glad we got that one. I'm glad you got that, James, because that was a toughie. <laughs> All righty. Uh, round 4 two, one to James. Name that player. I made 468 appearances and scored 108 goals in my time in the Premier League. I am the holder of a UEFA Champions League runners-up medal. Excluding loan spells, I played for nine different clubs during my career. Not all of them were in the Premier League, oh, but all were in England, yes.
3: Nick, Woody, Woody, Woody. This has to be Crouchy. Has to be Crouchy. It is, it is. It is. <laughs> yeah. it is Peter <laughs> oh,
0: you beat me to it. Mate, he might <laughs> be
3: one of the only people I know to play for that many clubs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, 2-2. Two, two. Alrighty, final one. Name that team. We have never won the Premier League. Our current manager has managed two Premier League clubs before us.
2: James, our, our cap, cap yes. yes. James, uh, Tottenham.
1: That is correct, <laughs> James. <laughs> <laughs> He's
3: laser. He's laser quick. Wait,
1: well, you got that after two. <laughs> Gee whiz.
3: Mate, you got it after one and a half. Do you, know, do you even need the full second question? <laughs>
1: i tell you what, the pressure was definitely on. Well,
2: uh, the last That's time sure. they won the Premier League title.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, congratulations.
3: Geez.
2: Thank you, boys. Very good.
1: All right, lads, Um. Well, James, Woody and I were discussing this off-air just before, actually. It's something we hadn't really discussed during the week because we didn't actually do a podcast last week. It was our first break in about... Oh, 47 reckon, weeks. Yeah, something outrageous like that. We hadn't missed a week. And, of course, we'd planned for, for a summer break, but we might not get that now because there'll be Premier League games throughout that time. So that was we took a little week off. But last time we did a pod, uh, the French League had been cancelled, but there hadn't actually been an announcement of whether they'd uh, give a champion or not. And of course, they did give it to PSG. But something that caught our eye even more was the fact that Kylian Mbappe got given the golden boot, despite Ben Yedder having the exact same amount of goals as him. And I think it was because uh, Mbappe had more goals in open play, if that's correct. Um, Um, Firstly... 100% 100% sure the Premier League share the golden boot if multiple players have the same amount of goals. What What's your view on that? Because we've even seen Mbappe say that it should be shared.
2: 100% should have been shared. I think if you look to the Premier League that they did last year it was Aubameyang, Salah and Mane all shared it on, on 22 goals each. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I don't understand do you know what? it sounds you know, silly and of course it can't be judged on this but if you're looking at someone like Wissam Ben-Yedder, he's, he's coming, I think I'm very sure it might have even been his, well, I think maybe he's been there for what, 18 months now at, at Monaco in, in a team that have been struggling. And you, you contrast that to, to Kylian Mbappe who have been playing for a Paris Saint-Germain team that have swept all before them, have been handed the league title, you know, it's no surprise that they won Liga again because Mm -hmm. their squad and their spending is is so far out of reach in comparison to the rest of the division. I don't understand how you can judge somebody on more goals from, from open play, because if you're looking at, you know, a team that, for example, um, let's say Jamie Vardy at Leicester, you know, the goals that he scored in the season where they stayed up and, players that are Danny Ings this season at Southampton, right? You can't put a price on just because it was a penalty. You know, what's to say that Wissam Ben Yedda didn't beat five players, get fouled in the box and then convert the penalty himself? You know, there's no no way to determine that. So the fact that his goals, you're saying that Kylian Mbappe's goals are more valuable or, or are worth more because they are from open play, I find it a bit... Ridiculous, And I find it a bit annoying because, you know, those goals, four of those goals could have been tap-ins from one yard that, that Neymar's teed up for him or, or Di Maria's <clears throat> teed up for him, you know. And to, to, to almost <clears throat> punish with Ben Yedder and not give him the golden boot because he may have scored one more penalty than, than Kylian Mbappé, I do find it a bit harsh.
3: Yeah, look, it is, no doubt, it's, it is pretty stiff. And I think it, it almost seems like the... um the the board I guess the the League One officials have just seemingly handed PSG as much as they possibly can um, come <laughs> the season end, um, but I guess I guess another another big headline that sort of caught our eye and it actually sort of came out last night for us it was right at the eleventh hour was um, that Boris Johnson came out and said that. You know, um, he's he's uh, delivering a roadmap um, in his national address towards uh, the reopening, I guess, of, of society and the economy um, over in the UK. And he said that, you know, uh, it's a design based on science and that if, if, quote, numbers support it, June 1 could be the potential date for reopening a lot of businesses. And that included potentially the Premier League itself and, and obviously James you're from the UK um, what, what do you sort of make of that and and I guess you I pro- no doubt you probably still have family over there but um, I guess what 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 do you reckon is it going to be the outcome of this and can you actually see the league coming back so it's for this season and in, if so when
2: yeah it, it's um it's a tough one because I, I'm a bit conflicted on on the whole thing really because yeah, I've still got, you know, my family my family and my friends are are over in the UK. It's, it's obviously my home and you know, I speak to them most days and, and just to get a grasp on, on not only how they're doing, you know, making sure they're okay, but just how life has been. And when you look at the the death toll from from COVID nineteen and the amount of cases and just how badly affected the UK has been, it, it makes it seem really tough to to even consider playing football again, you know, until this is brought under control. And I've seen a fair few players come out and say the same thing. I've seen um, the Crystal Palace chairman, Steve Parrish recently said something that Mm like, we can't even, we can't even look at football until this, this thing is under control because you know, when you look at the protocols that the UK has still got in, it's only just happened in the last few, few days. I think that they've started quarantining, people who are flying in from overseas um when if you think Mm. about what we did here in in australia that was something that was implemented like almost straight away so Mm -hmm. the fact that it seems from from being this far away that they're trying to play catch up with the whole system and then when you see three brighton players have been have been diagnosed with, with the virus and are now in quarantine and you no know, clubs are still training, but they kind of don't have a set date to train towards. And, and, you know, rightly so, players are going to be worried about mixing with officials and other staff members. And, and you know, because the last thing you want is, is if you're a professional footballer and you're, you're being forced to go into training, now I understand they've paid a lot of money and they're still receiving that money, but you're being forced to go in to do something you don't feel safe doing. And then heaven forbid you should... You should contract the virus and pass it to a family member, and you never know that. Then could lead down the chain, and you pass it to an elderly person who would be way more susceptible to it. Then mm. it doesn't bear thinking about what what the end result could be if you are if you are one of those players. Now, on the other hand, I'm desperate for it to come back because it's part of my job. It's part of my my reporting aspect, and you know, and, and first and foremost, we're all football fans. We love we love the game, but I, I do think that it feels as though June is a really, really low barometer as to what they've as to what they've set in order to to assess where they are. You know, come June the first. Because make no mistake about it, if if there is another spike in cases, then then that target will be pushed even further back. And the later it gets pushed back, originally I thought the Premier League would definitely be seen out, whether or not. That's in China, which was, seemed like a r- ridiculous idea at first. But then the more I thought about it, the more I read about it, you know, they've probably come on top of the virus more so than anyone else has. They're trying to operate as normal now, and the Premier League would look at it playing games in China as very lucrative. So, you know, there was an option like that. Um, I just, I, I, the more I think about it, I really struggled to see an exact date as to when the Premier League can come back. And I do think there is now an even bigger chance that maybe it doesn't come back at all.
3: Well Oof. it's interesting that you said that because the FA even a few days ago came out and basically publicly said that they won't let the season be declared null and void and that that, that teams are still going to get relegated this season and um it's really interesting that you do say that because you know if you have a power like the FA and and the bodies they've got on that board coming in saying hey look we're going to throw everything we can um at continuing in the league it probably raises a lot of question whether they're actually putting people's safety as a priority and and even Danny Rose and uh you know I think of Raheem Sterling and, and, and even Tyrone Mings um, came out even in the last few days and sort of slammed that that um press announcement and said that hey look guys like the nation's morale uh, in a nutcase case is not the priority here the priority is making sure people get through alive um, so I think yeah it's probably something that you, you really you, you raise a good point because it just doesn't seem like it's going to be extremely likely, and and, and even there's it, just so much risk involved. And we feel, Damon and I, definitely feel that that maybe the UK's is, is leaps and bounds behind um, where Australia is in terms of managing uh, managing the the virus itself. So I mean, it, it is really hard to see, you know, I guess a, a clear date of return.
2: Yeah, I agree, and and I think that the more you you actually process the situation as a whole and you know, I I I did a piece of words about it out on the comments that Danny Rose made and, and Raheem Sterling and you say means Mings and a few other players as well. That even if you look at very briefly the players overseas, some of the players in La Liga and you know, they said they're not happy about, it. you know, Spain has been hit terribly hard. Spain's economy is is nowhere near what, what the UK's economy is and, you know, as a country they've been they've been battered by this this virus and you know i i understand the point that you know some people would suggest that actually footballers are almost safer than most other people because if they're being taken into training they're being tested every single day in training every piece of equipment they're using is being sanitized before and after they use it they're not coming into contact with any other players at the moment but You know, it it does seem inevitable that there are going to be more and more cases that do arise because, you know, there is there is only so much you can safeguard against, and Mm -hmm. until they do find a vaccine for it, then I, I just wonder whether or not it's going to get to the stage where or not if they do resume the Premier League season then they are almost accepting the fact that if there are cases that arise from, you know, players testing positive or staff members testing positive, then they almost put those people to one side, treat them as if they are injured. Like you would do, you know, you're out for two weeks or whatever while you're quarantining at home and then you're back into the squad. Now, if that does happen, then it gets to the stage where they almost they 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 treat the coronavirus as, as, you know, Issue B, if you like, and issue A is, is the resumption of the mm. season. And, you know, it's almost like become that they, they accept that the coronavirus is, is part of day-in-day life until they do find a vaccine for it. Mm.
1: It's crazy. Um, just on the coronavirus, I do really want to get into some laughs, and I've got a few questions that I do really want to ask you, James. But one thing, obviously, at the moment, the sports media industry is feeling the effects because of no football or no sport in general being played. I I I don't know specifically what your situation is or what your department situation is, but like, what's it been like potentially seeing your colleagues and your friends uh, lose their positions at Fox Sports or maybe any other sports media company?
2: Yeah, it's been um, it's been really tough. In all honesty, you know, we've as as a not just as a channel but as an industry, it's it's been you know the word unprecedented has been used a lot and and with good reason because you know in my time in the media i can't ever remember something that was challenged uh, an entire industry quite like this you know the fact that initially when we were seeing the the outbreak in china and then you know from then it spread right across europe and, uh, and all the way to the states it You kind of thought that, oh, maybe this just will get under control pretty quickly, and then you soon realised that it wouldn't, and then you soon realised that when big sporting events were being knocked down one after the other, like dominoes, you soon began to get a real grasp of just how serious this was, and, you know, I've been lucky enough that I I don't know anyone personally or that's been affected by the virus in terms of, you know, family illnesses or, or, thank God, deaths or anything like that, but from a purely working perspective, it's been so difficult because, you know, with no sport on companies, revenues are going down and, it, you know, as much as you don't want to see anybody lose their jobs and nobody ever wants to lose their jobs. Like we've seen with, with football clubs and, and, you know, people are like that furloughing their staff and, you know, and using government money to help pay the bills. It's almost inevitable that it was going to happen if this, the longer this goes on. So to see, you know friends of mine and and really esteemed colleagues lose their jobs has been really tough and you know when when this thing ends i really hope that those people can get back into the industry because they're very very dedicated professionals and they're excellent at their craft you know so Mm -hmm. i the only crumb of comfort is that for those people that do work in the sports media industry is that you know sport will come back so I just hope for those people's sakes that you know they're not out of work for too long and they're keeping themselves and their families well.
1: Yeah, for me, I think you spoke about the, the dominoes falling in the sports world. The day the uh, NBA in America got, got suspended, I think that was the day that it became real for a lot of people and a lot of people in the sports industry sort of sort of just took a step back and and thought wow okay here we go and you know everybody we all know what happened pretty much a oh, from a week then it was just drop they all dropped like flies as you said so pretty scary stuff but you know it looks like we're sort of coming out of out of it with some sports being talked of of a return which we even just spoke about with the Premier League but until we're sort of all back to normal we really don't know what's going to happen tomorrow um James Sticking with your colleagues and stuff, I we spoke, we had Daniel Garbon maybe almost four or five months ago, and I, I asked him about what it was like almost for him being the face of Australian Premier League because every Saturday night when we watched watch the early kickoff, his face would be there telling us what the atmosphere is like, and as much as you know that's incredible when we get to see him every every week and get an idea of what the guys like. When we spoke to him on the pod, we created a new you know image of himself for us. What, what are the guys like down at Fox sports what, what's Bozza like and and all of those sort of lads do you spend much time with them outside of the office are they similar to
2: on camera to what they are off camera what are they like? Most people that you find and I I've, I've, I've met in in our industry are uh, especially the you know given that I've worked with a lot of current and, and former footballers are exactly what you see on camera because you know being a, a footballer you are it's it's different to an office job, you know. You you the, you don't get the sort of that locker room atmosphere that you with football that you know you wouldn't get that in in an office block. So they they they're just they're like young lads, even if they're in their forties, you know, because that's yeah, they've, yeah. known. they've known group camaraderie, they've known you know banter with the lads, and they've, they've known just doing what they love. And listen, they've been very well paid for their careers, and, and rightly so because they're in demand as 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 entertainers and as, as athletes. But the lads that I spend my time with at Fox Sports have been brilliant. I, you know, I, I see Bozza a fair bit because, you know, he comes in in the evenings and depending on what, um, <laughs> what shift pattern I'm working on. Bozza's like a whirlwind when he comes in and, and he's just, you know, everyone's drawn to him because he's a larger-than-life personality. And, you know, I worked with Garvey a lot and Garvey was a great lad. And, and you know, it, it does it does make going into work fun. When you work with people like that, that you just know what you see on camera is exactly what they're like when the cameras are turned off and they step off step.
3: That's actually really interesting. You you bring up uh, buzzer because oh, no, we, <laughs> we personally have found him to be a bit of an enigma to uh, a, a bit of an enigma to sort of get a hold of. Um, we, I reckon we've messaged him on three different accounts asking him to come on. 've we've, uh, we've, we've chucked up a few insta posts and Twitter posts about him and, and the most we ever get is just like a, a, a little reply on our story with like a, a clap emoji or something so he's a' he's. Uh, he's, dead, he's dead. I think
1: you've I think you've got to give this a little bit of context though woody it's not like you know we're, we're making burner accounts just to get in contact with yeah, him. We, you know we we, we, nah, we, didn't, we didn't actually plan to message him on three different accounts we sort of just did it individually without realizing and and <laughs> And yeah, so now we just sort of come across as a real interesting sort of pod for not the right reasons potentially. But yeah, uh, James, if you get a, if you get a hold of him, maybe just talk you know talk us up a little bit and yeah,
3: well, yeah. You. Know, maybe, maybe just let him know how to use his social media as well because I feel like it <laughs> might escape him at times. Is it, um, what's it like working with the likes of um, like you know Lucy Zelich? I don't know if you've ever had become um, come across her or Foz or. Um, Ned Zellich, um like these are the guys that we actually probably saw right on the edge of, of when we started getting to football so to see them on TV is a real privilege for us and I guess it's sort of a little bit of a spur what's it like to get behind the camera with them as well as well do you find that they they bring a different sort of insight
2: so I, I've um, I've ever actually worked with, with those three but to give you an example of what working with with the people that you see growing up as as a kid, when you work with them and when you see them milling around in the office before they're about to do a live show or, or before you know you you're in a planning meeting for um for for a show, it it, it at first it, it can be nerve wracking, but then you soon realise just you know this maybe doesn't say big volumes for everybody, but you soon realise just how professional and how knowledgeable and how good some of these people are at their jobs. My my first example of that was as a young kid, as I said, when I was working in the radio and I was working on a show with Ian Wright. And Wright he huh. was, as I said about Bother, was a whirlwind. He was everybody loves Ian Wright. And you know, that's not mm. just me speaking as an Arsenal fan. You don't find people that have a bad word to say about Ian Wright. And I remember working as a kid and he would come in, so I was probably about eighteen or nineteen, so you know, I say a kid. But he would come into our office at Talksport, and he would because he lived only around the corner in, in central London. He'd ride his bike round, and he would come <laughs> up in the lift on his bike and then ride his bike round the office, high fiving everyone when he got in.
0: And That, <laughs> that, that you know, the sort
2: of the, the sort of <laughs> characters that you work with, and just how how cool that was as a young young lad to see and to see like you know I remember this guy banging goals in in front of the North Bank at Highbury for Arsenal and then next thing I know I'm high fiving him when he's riding his bike past me in the office so <laughs> it is, it's a really cool scenario you know and I, as I say I've been very fortunate in that I've worked with a lot of former, former professional players and a lot of you know current ones who are probably coming towards the end of their careers now as well but it, it, one thing that you'll always find especially with the commentators and the hosts and the ex-players, the pundits, is that the dedication that you see during their playing careers or when they're at their pomp, you know, as a commentator or as a TV host, they've got there because they're nice people, they're very good at their job, and they're very prepared at what they do as well.
1: I I specifically remember... uh hearing about Mark Schwartzer, uh, Australia's very own, and about how basically he was talking during the week when he was a player, you know, it was 100% 100 professionalism during training. And he said he sort of took that mentality into the media. Of course, he's uh, big in Optus Sport at the moment. So, yeah, he was just talking about how the mindset doesn't really change despite what the job is. And I think that's like something that maybe non-professional sportsmen, don't you know always get the opportunity to get or if they do it's very special for them because you know I look at some of the some of the work rate of you know not just on the pitch but during the week the way players train you can understand why they're successful in other industries I mean you know, you look at some of the, pretty much any you can almost pick the players that are going to be successful in other industries post their career so um, you know it's not surprising to see or hear those stories about righty and how he's an, you know, a special character, I, I bet I bet he's an absolute ball to work with as well. <laughs> we asked on social media if anyone had any questions for you. And as you said, it's well documented that you're an Arsenal fan. So, of course, we've got some Arsenal questions. And <laughs> basically, some of the main ones, uh, look at one from at Antonator underscore 987. He, he sort of just wanted to know... Not so much what did Emery do wrong, but where do you think the plug was pulled in terms of times up?
2: Um, I would say, and this is just someone that you know, I wanted to give em- Unai Emery as much time as possible because he's he's a good coach, right? You don't you don't win the Europa Leagues that you won with Sevilla, you don't get given the Paris Saint Germain job at the time that they were in, you know, when they were spending all that money and going going big. Um, if you're a bad coach. And, you know, my my sort of second team is is El Maria, a club in Spain, and and he took them from the second division right up into, you know, I think seventh place in the first season when they got to La Liga. So he is a very good coach. His communication skills, I'm never going to criticise someone for their communication because, you know, I, I speak Spanish, but for someone that's tried to learn two new languages like he's done in the space of three and a half years is... Should be applauded. If anything, it shouldn't be criticised that his his grasp of English. Um, mm-hmm. I just think the way in which you could see that after that Europa League final defeat to Chelsea, the the end of the season where Arsenal faltered so badly, and they you know they they slipped up against Palace and they slipped up against Brighton when fourth spot was well and truly in their hands. Um, They went into that Europa League final On a really Really Bad run of form It looked like they'd Run out of gas Essentially And They carried that Into the new season And I think They probably left it Three or four weeks Too late To sack him Um, Mm -hmm. And I also think that The squad that he inherited Was so Average that they that needed waste? you know yeah exactly and they needed so much work doing to that squad that you know you've got to eradicate bad habits first and foremost that that were the, the hangover from the Arsen Wenger years, you know, the, the lack of defending, the lack of defensive culture in the team and, and you know, attention paid to defending and the mindset. They had a bad mindset and I think it was too much for him to achieve in what was essentially a three year period because that was the contract he was given. And I just think, you know, it was so obvious after, I reckon, probably <clears throat> after October, November time that it was just, it just wasn't working. And they made the call and, you know, they made the call and put Freddie Umberg in charge. But I just think it came about a month too late with Unai.
3: Do you think it was a, a more of a personnel problem or do you think it was directly because of Unai Emery's uh, involvement?
2: Uh, good question. I think it was a bit of both, in all honesty. I mm-hmm. think there were directives, from what I've heard and from the people I've spoken to from up high at Arsenal, especially involving Meza Ozil and the money that he was on, that Arsenal, mm-hmm. because their finances weren't great in terms of missing out on Champions League football for, what, three years running, you know their finances were taking a hit. And they'd spent big money on Pierre-Emerick of Bamiang. They'd spent massive money on um, Nicola Pepe. And then when you've got someone like Mesut Ozil there on, on, you know, when his contract is is in full flow, the bonuses and and the uh, incentives and whatnot on £350,000 a week, Mm. and and he's not performing, and he's not doing what Unai Emery was asking him to do in training and the way he wanted him to play, then you've got a problem. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if there was a directive on hire from from the manager or from the board and senior executives to say, listen, we don't want Mesut Ozil at the club for too much longer because we can't justify these mm-hmm. wages. We can't pay. And we've got a really unbalanced squad in terms of earnings. Um, and I think Unai Emery probably took that on board. And I think he probably used his own mannerisms and, and his own approach to the situation. Like we saw with him at PSG. I think he was, I think he fell out with a couple of big name players at, at PSG because he couldn't get the squad under control. And I think the way he manages is he's so full on. He's obsessive when it comes to the minor details of of tactics and homework that he sets the players. And I think this Arsenal team weren't ready for that after the complete opposite of what was Arsenal-Lengue beforehand, where they were essentially given free reign. And he was all about trusting players to make the right decisions on the pitch. And when they didn't do that, he would then stand up and, and be the shield for them and take the battering from the press and the media.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I don't think Unai Emery was essentially the right person to be able to do all of those things. Which I don't mm-hmm. think anybody was, because it, that is an enormous job to do those three things alone, let alone you know coach the team and try and get them to a fourth place finish.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. Uh,
3: spot- oh, go on, Damo. S-
1: sorry, Woody. I was just going to say it's it's spot on because you heard so often in that. You know, last probably six months under Unai, that Arsenal were a team that would look at the opposition before themselves in terms of planning. Well, that's what, you know, it looked like at least. Yeah. And then uh Arsen Wenger was sort of, this is how we play and we're not going to worry about the way they go about it. And in a way, both methods didn't work. So there's obviously got to be a balance. And, you know, Arsenal just haven't been able to find that yet. And their league table shows that. So, sorry, would he go on?
3: Oh no! Yeah, I was actually gonna say something along the similar lines. Um, but then now, now that you've already said it, I should sort of jump <laughs> on. And, and I guess if you look at the Ozil situation, in itself, you know, it seemed for a while that he was very much expelled from the from the first team. And we saw sometimes that he was gonna have his own private training sessions. We saw sometimes that he didn't. Well, he wasn't even making some squads. Um, but then obviously when Freddie Lundberg is, came in, um, you know, sort of played him a couple of times and then um, then obviously Arteta came in and he played him a few more times and he seemed to make his way a little bit back into the squad. But it just seems that f- for me, and, and definitely Damon and I talk about this all the time, is that, no matter no matter who's at Arsenal, it always seems like the big-name players are always going to be linked with moves away. And we look at the likes of abalmeyang we look at the likes of Ozil, of course, and then Sanchez in his final days. Or even his final couple of years, he was linked with pretty much everyone in Europe. And I guess knuckling down on the Abalmiang situation and, and Madrid now... Very much, uh, the rumour is very much picking up steam. Um, I, I guess you know, with that constant speculation, do, do you have a take on whether he, he'll stay or he'll leave, or or what do you reckon is going to happen there?
2: See, my initial gut instinct before we had the the coronavirus pandemic was that he was going because mm-hmm. there's no doubt that they would have wanted to to, to offer him money, but. Kieran McAvary the age he is now, he wants to win things. You know, he hasn't really... He wants to win the Champions League, which you can't begrudge any player doing that because it's so hard to win. You know, you've got to make the right career moves and you've got to have a lot of luck in there as well. And he's not going to win that at Arsenal because, you know, they're not even in the competition. So they can't even promise him that, you know, that's our aim because if they're not backing it up and haven't backed that up for three years, then, you know, you don't fancy the chances of doing it again. But now that that's all happened and there was... There's, you know, there's definitely an offer from Arsenal there. Um, I just wonder whether this whole global financial mess that's going to come from from COVID nineteen. I wonder whether his options of staying at Arsenal
0: are becoming
2: a bit a bit more favoured to him because. You know, we don't know how transfers are going to be affected. We don't know what sort of money clubs are going to have. You'd think Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United, and, and you know, depending on City and, and Chelsea and PSG's um, financial fair play regulations and how, you know, because they, they can't just go out and spend 300 million willy nilly. Uh, those three clubs, United, Barcelona, and Real Madrid. Don't,
1: don't forget Newcastle.
2: Newcastle, and, of, and, of, and, of, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just wonder that. I wonder how much money is actually going to be spent. And even though Obamiang has got 12 months left on his contract, he's the club's top goal scorer again. He has been pretty much every season since he arrived. I think Arsenal would be in a situation now where they would offer him a little bit more money on what he's already earning and the offer that was on the table. And they might say to him, listen, here's a two-year deal. So that would give you three years at us, and we'll put a cause in there. For example, if a big club does come in and wants to pay a certain valuation for you, then you can go. Um, I just wonder whether or not a lot of clubs transfer targets and their strategies have been massively changed because of how much money the clubs are and aren't going to have and who's going to become available as a result. So if you'd asked me before, I would have said he is definitely going because he, you know, he hadn't signed a contract up until that point. I'm now thinking it's probably 60-40 in favour of him still going, but I think the chances of him staying have increased from what they were before COVID-19.
1: Okay. I think one of the big things to come out of this as well is the player power might decrease. There's obviously been huge talk over about it for years, to be honest, about... How player powers increase so much, and how the clubs sort of have to listen to the players a lot more. And we saw what Aubameyang did when he wanted to go to Arsenal uh, at Dortmund. He sort of, you know, spat the dummy in a way in football version of it, and um, and he got his way. And you just sort of wonder if players are going to be able to do that if no one can a- afford them. You think of like Paul Pogba. Obviously, we talk about him all the time as well. And uh, is there going to be a club that can afford him now? Obviously, you said Madrid probably will be fine. And look, you probably are right. But the evaluation of players is probably going to decrease once this all passes over. But one thing about Aubameyang is you'd have to say he's probably, if you ask 20, 20 Arsenal fans, 17 of them are going to say Aubameyang's their favorite player. thats I think that's a fair assessment. But one thing I really want to ask you, not just who your favorite player is, but from you know back when you were in the UK, did you have a player that... Maybe not everyone's favourite, but because you knew them maybe a little bit more personally than than your average fan, you sort of were like, "Yeah, this is the guy that that I really enjoy enjoy knowing. He's at my club because he's a good lad, or anything like that."
2: Yeah, do you know the one that stands out for me straight away was Theo Walcott. I I, I didn't know mm-hmm. Theo, you know, as a, as a close friend, but I, I had a, a semi good working relationship with Theo. I could contact Theo and you know, asking about injuries and things like that. And everybody that has ever met Theo Walker will tell you what a lovely bloke he is. First and foremost, he's a very genuine person. He's very well-spoken. He's very polite. You know, he will always ask a question of you. And, and, you know, even when I uh, at first came out here, Arsenal were out here on a, on a pre season tour. Um, and I went and did some interviews, at, you know, before they were playing Sydney FC and the, and the Wanderers and, and Theo then would still recognise me, and he still said hello, and you know it was just a pleasure to deal with. So I always liked Theo, and I, you know, I always wished maybe this is definitely the media's fault for for bigging him up as from such a young age. But I always just wished and, and thought there was just a tiny bit more to come from Theo. But you know, he hit hundred goals for Arsenal, and you know he's had a great career times for England, and. You know, he scored in the FA Cup final and things like that. So he's had a great, you know, he'll look back on his career with great fondness, I'm sure. But he mm-hmm. was always mm-hmm. one that I loved and had a lot of respect for because, you know, I met him and, and you know, and had worked with him. Um, in terms of others, uh, there's, as I say, I mentioned Wrighty earlier and, and former players. Ray Parler was another one who I worked with a lot and I was good friends with Ray when I was in the UK. And, you know, mm-hmm. he was someone that was in Arsene Wenger's best teams. And was an integral part of those teams for a long period of time and you know he was always a great fan and he loves the beer as well so that makes it even better i
0: oh,
3: would yeah. like ray but
2: you can't go wrong with that those two would be the standout for sure
3: yeah no doubt i think i think thierry a really interesting one you bring up because like you said he he was sort of berated by the media from such a young age and i guess probably his inclusion in the world cup squad was probably one of the reasons because of that um at such at such a young age as well but then i guess i guess on the flip side as well do you have any stories or any players that you've completely just bottled the interview with or like any experiences where you've just gone and looked back and go geez how the hell did that happen to me
2: yeah so there's i've had a couple of funny ones A very short one the first time and i think it's maybe the. I think I've only met him twice. The first time I ever met Thierry Henry. Now Thierry Henry was he wasn't my, my idol as a kid, but he's the, mm-hmm. by far and away the best player I've ever seen play in the Premier League. He's, you know, he was a he was a freak of nature what he could do to defenses and what he could do single handedly to a game. And, you know, growing up as when he was in his absolute prime, I was, you know, a starry eyed fan in Highbury and, and I met him um, doing an event with Sky Sports probably probably about five years ago now. And mm-hmm. there's a photo on my social media account somewhere of where I went to shake hands with him, and I went to sort of post for a photo. But the way that the photo was taken really quickly makes it look we're about to lean in and kiss each other. <laughs> <laughs> when I look back on it now, it's so embarrassing because I thought, you know, <laughs> that's the only time I've ever got to meet my, my my boyhood hero playing football, and I do that in a photo with him. But in terms, of, in terms of interviews, there was one game I always remember. It was um, Everton against West Ham. It was at Goodison Park, and I was in the tunnel at, at Goodison, and it was after West Ham had been beaten, I think 2-0, maybe 3-0, and Slavin Village was in charge of West Ham. And oh, Slavin nice. was a really, really nice bloke, but if you got on the wrong side of him or if you wound him up, then you know, <laughs> he, he, he changed very quickly. And they had a striker on the bench, and I think maybe, memory serves me well, the striker may have been Diathras Sacco, I think, was on the bench, or he wasn't fully Mm -hmm. fit. They had a striker that wasn't fully fit, so he chose to play Mikhail Antonio through the middle. And Mikhail Antonio, you know, at the time, wasn't really a centre-forward, and in in my opinion, he still isn't a centre-forward. But So I asked Slavin that question, I said, why did you play... Michael Antonio through the middle, is because, you know, the others weren't fit enough? And he looked at me mm-hmm. steely facing, What do you mean? I went <laughs> Yeah, you know, and then when when you get put on the spot like that, it's when you have to are you have to think really quickly because you know, you're you're aware that what you're recording sometimes is going out live. You know, you sometimes you've got a mic that's directly up into the up into the press box where the program's going out live, or sometimes it's just recorded by you know an app on your on your phone. But you ha- I stumbled all over the place because he put me under such, you know, headlight. <laughs> so I was thinking, oh, what am I going to say to this? And then I had to justify what I meant by saying, is it because he wasn't fit enough? And he went, what do you mean fit enough? And I said, well, he chose to play Mikhail Antonia and he-, he got to the stage where he wouldn't even let me finish my questions. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping over me. As if to prove a point. So that was on with Slavin. But, you know, there've been some funny ones. Jürgen Klopp was always was always good. Um, I, I, I soon realized now this might be a bit of a spoiler for, for some Liverpool fans out there. I soon realized Jurgen's tactics in post match press conferences and why and what he did to and what he does to de- detract from if it's been a poor performance. Now, he hasn't had to do it a lot this year because you know they've lost one game, yeah. But-
0: yeah,
2: he'd often, he'd often turn the question back on you. I was working at um, the Vitality Stadium. It was a ridiculous game. Liverpool were winning, and then Bournemouth, I think Bournemouth won
1: 4-3. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Yep.
2: Maybe four seasons ago now, three seasons ago. And there was a couple of dodgy penalty calls in the game. And so we asked the question, and Jürgen, you could tell he was annoyed, but he's constantly smiling. And, you know, he's looking at you as if to say, get on with your question I don't want to be here hurry up so we can finish this so I said Jürgen what do you make of the controversial decisions in the game let's start with the penalty and he looks mm, I don't know and then he looks at me and goes what did you think did you think it was a penalty and then <laughs> you you could go one or two ways you could go oh well you know so." so, so, so. I thought maybe he tripped him I thought so it was a good call because then he's going to whatever you say he's going to go well you know that's your view fine you saw it I didn't see it and he'll just come out with the answer where it's like oh you know move on next question didn't see it but what I did say was well Jürgen I'm not the manager of Liverpool and nobody cares what I think what the you think? and turned it back on him again and he kind of laughed as if to say fair enough you got me well played when those things happen it does really test you and you know I often think that the best journalists and the best post-match and pre-match you know, reporters and interviews come from when the journalists listen to what, they, to what the, the player, the manager, the guest says. Because you can have all the questions lined up in a row, but if you're too busy focusing on what you're going to answer next instead of listening to what that person is actually saying to you, you can often miss the chance to, to ask a really good follow-up question because
0: mm-hmm.
2: sometimes, you know sometimes a player or a manager might say something deliberately and they might want to get a message out there or they might want to you know broadcast a specific opinion. And if you completely gloss over that, then you are potentially missing out on the chance to have a great story or a great line from them in a press conference about you know, an angle or an incident or or a potential signing or a potential problem with a player or something like that. So I often think that's what makes such good interviews is when you just listen. You just listen to what they're saying, just respond to what they say because ultimately that's what people want to hear from and, you know, they they make for the best interviews.
1: I think we're getting a little bit of live advice here, Woody.
0: (laughs)
3: So, I guess it's probably, as, the, as we tick over an hour, uh, it's probably good to get stuck into a few of our little questions that we like to ask um, that, that see a little bit of create, creativity come into it as well. So, uh, number one is probably my favorite question I ever ask on the podcast, and I, I always ask every single guest, I absolutely love hearing it, is, is can you please name your ideal Premier League 5 aside of current players that has to include... A goalkeeper as well.
2: Yes. Okay. So any <laughs> any players from any from any teams? Yeah? yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Just have to be current players.
2: Cool. So I would definitely have to say it's a toss up between Allison and Edison in goal, but I'd probably go with Allison just because I think he's he's in better form over the last eighteen months and he's probably ever so slightly better with his feet. So I'll go with Allison okay. in goal. Um. Mm-hmm. I'd go Trent Alexander Arnold.
0: As a defender.
2: Yeah, As one of my defenders. I'm gonna go for midfield, a player that I've I've always loved and always admired, just because I think he's often a bit of an unsung hero. And I know he's won the World Cup and you know he's won titles with Leicester and Chelsea, but what I love about N'Golo Conte is not just his ability to, to be everywhere and see everything and be in the right place at the right time because that's not luck you know that's this is a guy that was was being too small by a lot of clubs when he was younger he was he was plucked by Leicester from I think it was from Cannes in, in France in, in, in Ligue 1 and Ligue 2 at the time and, and they took a gamble on him because of his stats even though his size and I love the way that he plays the game I love the fact that he's always got a smile on his face he never gets booked for dissent you never see him arguing with the referees he never does anything that's it's dirty, um, and I love that sort of player, and I love like just a hard-working player. So Conte would be in the midfield for me. I'm going to be biased, and I'm going to say I'm having Pierre or Aubameyang up front just because, you know, I, I've got to have an after player in there somewhere, and I can't justify <laughs> put him, put him
0: in.
1: And you've got to put it—you've got to put him in a Premier League team before before he leaves the Premier League, I so
2: guess. You right. quickly, yeah, quickly yeah. put him in.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and. I tell you who I'm going to have also in there, and you know he's, he's definitely past his best now. But I think one of the best attacking midfielders that's ever played in the Premier League is David Silva. I could watch nice. David Silva. Great play. shout! All day, every day. I just love the the guile and the and the the technique that he brings to the game. The cl- he's if you could describe him as, as as a footballer in one word, it would be class. Because
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know. If you look at the records for Spain, even, I think he's fourth all-time goal scorer for Spain. And that's as somebody who's been played as a number 10, who's someone played out left, out right. And I just, sometimes, you know, as football fans, we're very fortunate to watch someone play football who makes it look easy. And for me, David Silva does that. So, yeah, David Silva rounds out the five.
1: Very nice, very nice. I think... The uh, The introduction to Pep Guardiola at Manchester City was timed perfectly for him. I think he added a few more quality years onto his career. And, of course, he shaved his head, which made him even better as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a funny feeling this one might be a difficult one for you, but just based on the way you've answered the question so far, who is the most famous person you have in
2: your phone contacts? Uh, good question. I'm going to scroll very quickly now. Um, <laughs> I'll, put, I'll, I'll point. I'll, I'll shout the names as I go past them. Okay. Uh,
3: so, a. Arsene Wenger. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You, wait. Sorry. You have you have Arsene Wenger's number. Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <That's so
2: cool. laughs> and it, it's weird. It, and now, listen. There's no guarantees that these are still their current numbers, but there's yeah. every chance. B. Brendan Rodgers. Uh, oh C. Uh, Chris Kirkland. Does you remember him as a Liverpool goalkeeper? There's, mm-hmm. there's loads. I'll go for Arsene Finger. Or <laughs>
0: okay,
1: if you could see my face right now, <laughs> no, I, oh my god! I'm saying, <laughs> I, I'm, I am
3: speaking. i i do not know what to say. So, what is the go? One. Go on. There are
2: some there are some strange ones. I, I've, I've been doing a little piece for work recently where I was trying to speak to um, uh, just, you know, footballers around the world that I've got either details to or try and get in touch with, just to see how they've approached the whole the lockdown period and, and some footballers, you know, leaving in council. Like I spoke to Adam Rustich, the soccer um FC Groningen mm-hmm. in the Eredivisie, and their season's now been cancelled. So I chatted to him and it was really good to just get his perspective about, you know, being told they've still got to go into training for another three weeks, then have a week off and then another three weeks even though there's no football to look forward to. So you know, he was part of the package. I spoke to a lad um plays for El Maru in Spain, Arvin Opayo, and a guy who used to play for Chelsea actually and a couple of other clubs, Michael Mancien. Um he plays yeah, in oh, yeah so, yeah, so mm-hmm. he's now at uh, New England Revolution in MLS. So mm-hmm. I chatted to him and I was I was going through a few people on my phone book just to try and see who I could what I could just find, you know, and just try and work out where they were now and i came across rafa benitez's number (laughs) Uh, so i thought you know what i'll throw it out there i'll just send him a message it might not even work the number anymore he might have changed his number but he got back to me about an hour later and he's you know i think he might even be back in the uk at the moment um i know his family still lives there he's he's managing in china but i know his family still lives in liverpool um so yeah, and then I just I was just having a text conversation with Rafa Benitez a couple of days ago. <laughs> wow! I think, I think I'm going to be interviewing him in a couple of weeks. So fingers crossed on that one. But yeah,
3: awesome. I
2: still go for Aston awesome finger.
3: Wait, so so yeah. what's the go when you when you interview a manager or you see them? I guess behind the scenes, before or after a press conference, do you sort of say? hey, Arsene, do you mind if you just pass me your number? Or, or, or how, how does that conversation go down? How do you come in the possession of a, of a Brennan Rogers or Arsene Wenger uh, a mobile number?
2: <laughs> so often, um, Arsene was, it was a, a strange one. Arsene was, we, we were doing an interview over the phone with Arsene and it was set up, I think it was, it was set up by the club, it was set up by a... Um, by, like, an agency, you know, like a, it was a sponsored thing. Um, and so mm-hmm. they gave the number, they passed it on to you and just said, like, this is the number to call when you were doing the interview for the radio show I was working on. So you just keep that contact, you know. Don't get me wrong, I never, I never messaged them or I don't, you know, I don't badger <laughs> them and pester them saying, hey, what are you doing tonight? Fancy a beer, you know, it's nothing like that. One <laughs> <laughs> with Brendan was what you often find is that when you, Speak to players and, and managers when they're either younger or early on in their career and they're a, a smaller club or a, a smaller, you know, they're in a smaller managerial position. Then you, you, we used to get them when I worked on the radio show on like an evening show, it was 7 till 10 p.m., Monday to Friday, with, with the show that we worked on. And as an assistant producer, it would be your job to try and source guests and, and just chat to people and, and get them on as you know for like a 10 minute segment or something like that and talk about how the season's going and what they're doing. And uh, Brendan Rodgers was at Reading at the time when he was just,
0: you you know,
2: first on a step. So Mm
0: -hmm. I
2: kind of, you know, and they were approachable those days. The press, you'd ring the club and the press officer and they'd just say, listen, here's his number. We've organised the interview. Just give him a call and all good. Um, And so it's one of those ones I just kept hold of. And, you know, he's been, every time I've I've interviewed Brendan or worked with him, you know, he's been a really, really nice fella really you know, a lot of people have a different opinion of him and the way, you know, he, he comes across, but he's actually a really nice guy and he's always been approachable ever since the first days when he was at Reading and then, then at Swansea and Liverpool and, and you know, places like that. He's just been good value, Brendan. So that's that's often, you know, for everyone where you get given a golden number for someone, a lot of the time it is when they've worked their way through from a younger age or from a, a, a lower position and you just keep hold of the contact.
1: Mm. I, I sounds like Brendan's not the type of guy you're going to text, I think it was the season after Liverpool almost won the league You know, it's just like, ah, you copped that Brendan, lost your job, not putting four past Arsenal in the first 20 minutes anymore are you? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: oh
1: jeez right, Woody, do you want to shoot the last question?
3: mate, I'd love to uh, <laughs> if you could have dinner with one player in the Premier League, who would it be? Great question. Um, he stumps everyone. One player.
2: one player. I reckon it would have to be it would have to be, do you know what, it would have to be with someone a bit mad. who Someone who would be good value at a dinner table. Someone that would, would be a bit quirky. Like, you know, I need to double check where he still is, actually, now. But <laughs> For some reason, obviously a lot of people, you know, you think the nutters and people who are a bit eccentric and stuff. I would love to, I, do you know someone I would have been, and this is just because it springs to mind straight away, Robert Hoof. And I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. I, okay. yeah,
3: I reckon yeah.
2: Robert Hoof is great on the beers. I reckon he loved. he could just drink <laughs> a sign after <laughs> a sign of proper like German lager. Yeah, and it yeah. just, I reckon it would just be a great laugh. You could sit there and just, you know, like pretend you're at Oktoberfest and smash the <laughs> the sausages and schnitzels, pretzels, just stein after stein with beer. I reckon it would be great fun. So I'm, I'm literally and I'm going to say Rob Ho. <laughs> yeah, that's a great shout. First person who popped into my head.
3: Well, that's actually pretty funny you say that because uh, Optus Sport have a have a um a podcast called Two Sharp Reds with Mark Schwarzer on it, and he said. Robert Huth is definitely probably the player that could sink the most amount of alcohol in one setting. Um, so I think that would be that be a, a big night as well as a big dinner. I think. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: All right, Well, on that note, uh, James, it's been an unbelievable pleasure to have you on. I think Woody and I complete. I think Woody would definitely agree with me in saying that, you know, during this time when there's no football on to be able to talk to someone like yourself and and still be able to talk about sport and football for over an hour with ease. I mean, we could easily do this for another hour if we, if we could and had the time. So I think it just goes to show, you know, the type of type person you are for starters and the type of game that football is that we can sit here regardless of no games being played for two months and still talk, talk like we have.
2: Absolutely boys. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. just honestly, you know, like I said, sitting as if we're in a virtual pub at the moment, just, just chatting about the football and, and just having a laugh, and it's been uh, it's been a pleasure.
3: Anytime. Awesome, and and I think it's it's only fair because you're the only guest that has been on with us for the whole hour and a bit. I think it's fair that you do the final sign off. So what's <laughs> going to happen is Damon's <laughs> going to say goodbye. I'll say goodbye, and then you've got to say thank you for boogying at the Premier League nightclub. Got that? Got that? Yeah. All right, right. Damon, you want to kick us off?
1: All right, Woody, it's time to wrap this one up. It's been an absolute pleasure. Woody, if they want to find us on the Instagram, where can they find us?
3: You can find us at Premier League Nightclub on the Instagram. And where can you find us on the Twitter, Damo?
1: You can find us on the Twitter at PLNightclub or search us on the Facebook. Make sure you subscribe or follow wherever you listen to your podcast. On that note, I'm out of here. See you, Woodruff. See you, James. See you, guys.
2: Absolute pleasure. And ladies and gentlemen, don't, make, don't forget... Thank you for boogieing in the Premier League nightclub and hit that subscribe button and keep tuning in.